The Alexiad by Anna Komnini, Book 10. After a brief rest from his many labors, the emperor, Alexios I Komnenos, my father, discovered that the Turks were engaged in general plunder, overrunning the interior of Bithynia. On the other side, the affairs of the West claimed his attention, but he was more concerned with the Turks. The trouble there was more urgent. To deal with them, he conceived a project of major importance, worthy of his genius. The plan was to protect Bithynia against the Turkish incursion with a canal. The emperor himself directed its construction from early morning till evening, despite the soaring temperatures. He had to endure both scorching heat and the dust. Enormous sums of money were spent to ensure that the walls should be most strong and impregnable. He paid generous wages to the men who dragged the stones, one by one, even if 50 or 100 workers were involved at a time. The money attracted not casual laborers, but all the soldiers and their servants, natives and foreigners alike. They were glad to move stones for such liberal pay under the direction of the emperor in person. To them, he seemed like a prize giver at the games. He made skillful use of the crowds who flocked to help, and the transport of these huge blocks of stone was made easier. It was typical of Alexios. He thought deeply about a project, and then worked with tremendous energy to complete it. Such were the events of the Emperor's reign up to the year. He had no time to relax before he heard a rumor that countless Frankish armies were approaching. He dreaded their arrival, knowing as he did their uncontrollable passion, their erratic character, and their irresolution, not to mention the other peculiar traits of the Celts, with their inevitable consequences. Their greed for money, for example, which always led them, it seemed, to break their own agreements without scruple for any chance reason. He had consistently heard this said of them, and it was abundantly justified. Far from despairing, however, he made every effort to prepare for war if the need arose. What actually happened was more far-reaching and terrible than rumor had suggested. For the whole of the West, and all the barbarians who lived between the Adriatic and the Straits of Gibraltar, migrated in a body to Asia, marching across Europe, country by country, with all their households. The upheaval that ensued as men and women took the road was unprecedented within living memory. The Celts, as one might guess, are in any case an exceptionally hot-headed people and passionate. Full of enthusiasm and ardor, they thronged every highway, and with these warriors came a host of civilians, women, and children. Outnumbering the sand of the seashore, or the stars of heaven, carrying palms and bearing crosses on their shoulders. As they approached Constantinople, a plague of locusts moved before them. And welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 1.16, Jerusalem Calling. Or is it Constantinople? 
This is the final episode of our first season, The Call from the East. Now, my original plan was to cover the First Crusade as a part of this season, but I feel it's better to have this era stand alone and dedicate an entire season to the First Crusade. So that's what we'll be doing. Uh, scheduling notes in case you are with us in real time, I will be skipping a release date to prepare for season two. That means our next episode will be released in one month, not two weeks. However, earlier this week, you may have noticed I put up a crossover promo from the After Alexander podcast on the feed. And over at After Alexander, you can find a crossover promo of mine. So if you're itching for a sneak peek of what's to come, I recorded a short excerpt from the Jesta Francorum, a contemporary source for the First Crusade. The author of the Jesta was an anonymous soldier under our friend, Bohemond, the Italo-Norman. And while you're over there, you can gain more detailed knowledge about the Hellenistic worlds left in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests. So, win-win. Now, on to today's episode. Our main aim today is to finish the tale of the 11th century Roman Empire. What Alexios Komnenos creates during the first decades of his rule is a renovated Roman Empire. And we'll get into what that word renovated means during this episode. Because the call for Latin Christian aid has to be understood within the context of Alexius's greater vision, or perhaps lack thereof, for the Roman Empire. Now, the actual call from the East is a bit controversial, as are many things related to Alexius's reign. This episode will have a lot of quotes, because I want to include verbatim some of the various takes we have on Alexios and this call from the East. So let's get into it. Last time we were in the Roman Empire, in episode 1.12, Alexios and his brother, Isaacios, had launched a coup to remove the decrepit emperor, Nikiforos Vataniatis, who had come to power via coup himself, with the aid of Suleiman ibn Kutlumush, first sultan of Rome, unofficially at least. In episode 1.13, we focused on the Norman invasion that nearly toppled the Romans in the 1080s. Though Alexios was able to push back against the Normans, the invasion only came to a true end when Robert the Giscard of Oatville died in 1085. This alleviated some pressure, but not much. In the northern Balkans, the Pechenegs were acting up again. These were those Turkic raiders who had caused Constantinos Monomachos so much trouble decades earlier, and who we discussed way back in episode 1.5. Obviously, the instability of the last few decades of Byzantine civil war after Manzikert had allowed for a renewal of their raids, and throughout the 1080s, Alexios struggled to regain control of the Danube region. And then, of course, there was Asia. In the decades following the Battle of Manzikert, the region we would nowadays think of as Turkey, sans its European possessions, was home to two main forces, the Turkmen and the Armenians. Also present were various Frankish mercenaries that had once served in the Roman army. In episode 1.7, we explored how the Armenians crystallized into small principalities, most notably the statelet carved out by Filaretos Prochamios, the former Roman general, as well as the various Armenian-controlled cities and fortresses that would eventually coalesce into the kingdom of Armenian Cilicia, nestled in the crook where Anatolia meets Syria, the far east top right corner of the Mediterranean Sea. These Armenians had complicated relationships with Constantinople. Though Filaretos had refused to acknowledge Mikhail Dukas, he had nominally accepted the overlordship of the usurper, Fotaniatis, and it seems he maintained more or less the same arrangement with Alexios. He was still, in name at least, 
domestic of the East, in command of all the Byzantines' eastern forces. Whatever that meant at this point. Though, I will remind you that just prior to Filaretos, Alexios' own brother, Isaacios, had been the governor of the great city of Antioch, so Filaretos might have had reason to worry about the future longevity of his rule there. Antioch was a prize and would remain the key to Roman aspirations of reconquering Asia Minor for decades, if not centuries. Filaretos was no fool, and he knew the Romans would exert direct control over the city if they could. So he was no doubt open to other options that might better ensure his own status. The other Armenians were also tricky to pin down. They didn't exactly have great memories of living under Roman control, but it's not like they were super happy about the Turkmen either. In their dreams, they were independent from both, but that independence would have to be earned, and if the Romans could somehow prove themselves capable of protecting or conquering them, well, then the Armenians might be swayed to accept Roman dominion once more. And as for the Turkmen, well, there were the more chaotic forces. These were barely states at the time. Groups like the Danishment in the region of Greater Armenia were really just raiding parties. That's not to say that they would stay that way forever, they were very similar to the first few scraps of terrain that the Normans had conquered in Italy, as we described in episode 1.2. Their method of governance was mostly naked extortion. But hey, if you dress that up with some pomp and ritual and maybe a shiny crown, you got yourself a state. A bit farther west was the, as of yet, still unofficial Sultanate of Rum. We dealt with them back in episode 1.11, and they have remained a presence since, as I mentioned a few times, most recently in episode 1.14, it's not at all accurate to view the Seljuks of Anatolia under Suleimani bin Kutlumush as an extension of the Great Seljuk Empire. The relationship between the Turkmen in Anatolia and the Great Sultan was far from cordial, to the point that the Great Sultan Malik Shah apparently sent one of his commanders, Bursuk, to capture or kill Suleiman. He failed to do so, but as a consolation prize, he seems to have killed Suleiman's brother, Mansur. It's important to not swing the other way and view Suleiman as just another Byzantine governor. He was definitely their ally, but exactly how subordinate he was to the Romans is debatable. Suleiman was clearly ambitious, and working with the Romans was the easiest way for him to consolidate his rule in Anatolia. However, he was also a Seljuk, and using that famous name was another tool open to him. Our sources are not at all clear. They all have their own biases and problems, so I think the best way to parse this little love triangle is to view Suleiman as Schrodinger's vassal. He was a Seljuk prince when it was convenient for him, but he could just as easily transform into a Roman client. And it seems very possible, if not downright probable, that he was acting in this capacity as a Roman client when he took Antioch. Some historians are certain and it's definitely within the realm of possibility that when Suleiman acted against Filaretos, he was doing so with the blessing of Alexios. As we covered in episode 1.7 and 1.12, the story of how Filaretos lost control of Antioch is not at all clear. Anna Komnini's story of Filaretos converting to Islam and then his son giving the city over to Suleiman for this reason doesn't make a lot of sense, and if anything, it lends credence to the idea that she's just trying to cover for her dear old dad. On the other side of the coin, you've got the version espoused by Peter Frankopan in The Call from the East. He breaks it down as follows. Alexios tried hard to win Filaretos over, but to no avail. By 1084, the Armenian did indeed decide to convert to Islam and swear fealty to Malik Shah. And then, well, 
To quote Francopan directly, For Alexios, this was catastrophic news. The prospect of Filaretos recognizing the authority of the Caliph and the Sultan was worrying enough. The threat that, with Melitene, Edessa, and Antioch under his control, he might also turn over important towns and provinces to the Turks provoked a serious crisis. Alexios reacted immediately, taking countermeasures to secure the towns and regions the rogue general controlled and transferring them into the hands of loyal supporters. A certain Toros, or Theodore, whose court title of Kuropalates indicates that he was a close retainer of the emperor, took control of Edessa. His father-in-law, Gabriel, did the same in Melitene, being named governor of the town. Castles, fortresses, and other strong points in this region were also occupied by commanders loyal to the emperor. Yet, it was to Suleiman that Alexios turned to secure Antioch. According to one source, the Turk moved quickly on the city in 1085, traveling via a secret route to avoid detection, presumably shown to him by Byzantine guides. When he reached the city, he entered it with little ado and took control of it, harming no one and treating the inhabitants conspicuously well. Peace was re-established, everyone returning to his place unharmed. Arabic sources likewise comment on the kindness Suleiman showed to Antioch's inhabitants. The peaceful occupation of Antioch contrasts sharply with the experiences of Western knights who tried to take the city just a few years later. Protected by fearsome natural and man-made defenses, Antioch was all but impregnable. But Suleiman did not have to use force to take control. He was acting on behalf of the emperor, and so the inhabitants of the city, the majority of them Greek-speaking Byzantines, were willing to let him in. The fact that Alexios seems to have made no attempt to counter either the threat of Filareto's defection by sending his own troops or stop Suleiman's move on Antioch is revealing. This was another case of fruitful collaboration between the Turk and the Byzantine. End quote. Okay, so what can we make of Frankopan's version of events? I want to mention that there are some issues with Frankopan's book. There's a really great analysis of the whole thing on YouTube. The only problem is it's in French. So if you speak French, it's by a French language history channel called Erodot.com. That's uh, H-E-R-O-D-O-T apostrophe C-O-M, Erodot.com. I definitely recommend the channel in general. He's got a great series on the Crusades and really on many interactions between the Outremer states and the Roman Empire in particular. Cependant, faut comprendre le français pour en profiter, quoi. Anyway, Fred from Aero.com points out a few things that I definitely agree with. The TLDR of the video, which is over an hour long, is that Frankopan is a Byzantinist, and he gets a bit fuzzy with the details when he focuses on other areas that aren't Roman. This is most notable in the second half of the book, which details the actual narrative of the First Crusade. Take, for example, what Frankopan has to say about Tauros, who we've discussed before. First, in episode 1.7, and recently in his cameo appearance at the end of episode 1.14, Frankopan later says that Malik Shah didn't replace Tauros as governor of the city, and he left the Armenian in charge. Yet, as I mentioned in episode 1.14, other sources, writing from a Seljuk perspective, say he placed the Turkmen emir Bozan in command of the city. Frankopan does add a footnote that the exact history of what Toros got up to during this period is unclear, but details like this can give the impression, at least, that Frankopan is only focusing on interpretations and facts that support his narrative, either because he's not as adept at dealing with sources that aren't Roman, or because he just excludes details that undercut or don't directly support his narrative. 
That's not necessarily a terrible thing. You can't include every possible interpretation, especially if you want to keep your text readable. But the call from the East makes some unique arguments. It challenges a lot of the assumptions about the First Crusade, and while I think he sheds a lot of light on the Byzantine-Roman role, and particularly the interactions of Alexios Komnenos with the Turkmen, which is much more complex and nuanced than traditionally presented, I also feel that he maybe overcorrects a bit in some areas. For example, going a bit too far in emphasizing Roman, Armenian, and Turkmen collaboration. That doesn't mean he's necessarily wrong about Suleiman having Alexius' support in taking Antioch. It would explain how this was accomplished so quickly and efficiently. No matter what the truth of the matter is, it seems clear someone inside Antioch was on Suleiman's side. Nevertheless, as we've now covered twice, both in episode 1.11 and episode 1.14, Suleiman was soon dead. In 1085, he lost in battle to his cousin, Tutush, Malik Shah's brother, and was then either killed or committed battlefield suicide. Suleiman's death is part of the reason we have difficulty deducing his loyalties. His successors, as Sultan of Rum, will have no doubts about their reciprocal enmity vis-a-vis the Romans. They will be living in a post-Crusader world, so a backstory that presented their founding father Suleiman as a Byzantine client wasn't exactly attractive. Instead, they did their best to paint their origins as tied to greater Seljuk conquests. It certainly helped that by that point, the Seljuks of Persia were in no position to dominate the Seljuks of Anatolia, so there was less of a threat in building ties with them. And that's how we get some of the accounts we explored in episode 1.12, wherein rule in Anatolia was a gift from Malik Shah to Suleiman. So what can we make of all this? Really now, what's the story here? Well, I don't think we'll ever know the truth of many things going on during this era. I think again about my other languages, Spanish and French, where history is literally just the story. The interpretation that we've settled on. So, what have I settled on? Well, given the various sources I've read, which again, are mostly secondary sources from historians, or translations of the primary sources, I don't read Greek, or Arabic, or Armenian, or any of the other dozens of languages native to the region, so I'm judging based on the modern interpretations in English and French written in the last 200 years, most of them in the last 70 to be honest. Okay, that's enough terms and conditions. I accept, I accept. Here's the history of the Uchimar version. You ready? The Tale of Suleiman Shah, First Sultan of Rum. Let's set the scene. The year is 1063. Kutlamush ibn Israel, grandson of Seljuk himself, has just died. His son, Suleiman, has been taken prisoner by the new great sultan, Al-Barslan. You would think that Al-Barslan would kill Suleiman, but no. See, as we discussed in episode 1.14, the legitimacy of the Seljuks lies in the dynasty as a whole. Kutlamush was acting within his rights when he tried to seize the throne, and even in the case of rebels, the spilling of royal blood was avoided. So Al-Barslan is convinced to leave Suleiman and his brothers alive if only to avoid a political faux pas. Instead, Suleiman and his brothers were brought up as hostages. This was not uncommon in the medieval world. If you want an example of what this dynamic might have been like, Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones is a pretty good one. Technically a prisoner, but not kept in a cell or anything like that. So, Suleiman grows up, and then, in 1072, disaster strikes. Albarslan dies. But, one man's tragic death is another man's get-out-of-jail-free card. The brothers Kutlumush are now set loose upon the world. They quickly find supporters, 
particularly among the Nawakia raiders who'd once supported their father, and they move west now. They raid throughout Anatolia and Syria. The boys are back in town. The brothers Kutlumush are basically rock stars. They have that Seljuk name to fall back on. And soon, Malik Shah is regretting his dad's decision. A few of the brothers have made an alliance with the Fatimid vizier, Badr al-Jamali. This undermines the close alliance Malik Shah has with the Abbasid Caliph. Luckily, they're defeated by the Turkmen emir Atsiz and handed over to Malik Shah. Suleiman is left free though. Malik Shah tells his cousin, Hey cuz, stay the fuck out of Syria and maybe I won't fucking choke you to death with a fucking bowstring. You can raid in Anatolia, but stay out of my territory. Suleiman is sufficiently spooked, and he continues to hang out in Anatolia, raiding Roman cities and fortresses and just living it up. And then, via his Nawakia buddies, he gets a message from Ariscon. Ariscon was also a Nawakia raider, and he defected to the Roman Empire just before the Battle of Manzikert in 1072. Actually, he probably caused the Battle of Manzikert in 1072. Anyway, he became a member of the Constantinopolitan aristocracy. Now he's got friends in high places. So he comes to Suleiman and he tells him, Hey, so this old man, Votaniatis, is about to make a play for Roman Emperor. If you support him, you can get a sweet deal like me. Suleiman is won over. He pledges his support to Votaniatis. And with his aid, Votaniatis does indeed become Roman Emperor. Now, what exactly was this sweet deal? What did Votaniatis give to Suleiman? Well, definitely money. Probably some territory, perhaps Nicaea, though that might have been Melisinos a bit later, or Alexios at some point. If the old Roman was smart, and it's unlikely he would have made it to 80 if he'd been an idiot, well, he probably would have tried to integrate Suleiman into the Roman infrastructure. I can't find any sources that state Suleiman was given any titles, like the ones Ariscon had received, to officialize him as Roman nobility but it's possible I just overlooked them, or that there are no records of these. Remember, again, our best sources for this era are the accounts of Anna Comnini and her husband, Nikiforos Vrienios. Well, and Votaniatis propagandist, Ataliatis. That's like trying to reconstruct the last 10 decades of U.S. history using only the Twitter feeds of Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, and her husband, and a copy of Barack Obama's memoirs. Anyway, so Suleiman begins to settle into his role as Roman muscle. What exactly he's getting out of the deal is unclear. But when, in 1081, there's a change of leadership in Constantinople, Suleiman sticks around and aids the new emperor, Alexios, in fighting off the Norman invasion. Over in Persia, Malik Shah gets word of his cousin's new gig, and he does not like this news at all. Suleiman was now recognized as a somebody in Anatolia, and that would attract followers. It could even inspire the Seljuk prince to make a play at becoming great sultan. Maybe the Christians are already calling Suleiman a sultan, unofficially. So Malik Shah sends one of his goons, Bursuk, to deal with the problem. Bursuk fails, and Malik Shah is forced to content himself with having killed one of Suleiman's brothers. Meanwhile, in Antioch, the Armenian warlord, Filaret of Hamios, is getting pressured to swear total fealty to Malik Shah. Now here's where things get real fuzzy. Someone in Antioch makes a deal with Suleiman. Maybe it was someone acting on Alexius' behalf, or maybe it was someone else. Suleiman was probably hobnobbing it with all the big shots. Maybe someone else decided that Filaretos needed to go. 
So Suleiman takes Antioch. Now he's done what Malik Shah ordered him not to do, return to Syria. Syria-Palestine is by now firmly within the Seljuk orbit. Tutush, the great sultan's brother, controls a good chunk of territory, extending down to Jerusalem. So Suleiman knows he can't play this one as a rebel, like his brothers had done. He presents himself as a loyal subject of Malik Shah. He's a Sunni Turkmen just like anyone else. Alexios who? He gets into it with the governor of Aleppo and kills the guy. Then he tries to take Aleppo. That was a step too far. Tutush wanted Aleppo, so he moved against Suleiman. And there, in 1085, ends the tale of Suleiman ibn Kutlamush. But Suleiman didn't leave nothing behind. Sure, in northern Syria, Malik Shah was quickly able to take Edessa, Aleppo, and Antioch. Surprisingly, he had no trouble there. So maybe Suleiman left someone to give the city over to the great sultan. Or the residents of the city realized that without Suleiman to protect them, they were sitting ducks. Might as well surrender to the great sultan. Anatolia, though, well, that was a good deal farther away and full of Nawakia to whom bending the knee to the great sultan was completely anathema. In Anatolia, the death of Suleiman broke whatever arrangement Constantinople had had with the Turkmen. Suleiman had left a general of his, Abul Qasim, in charge of the de facto capital, Nikea, modern Iznik. When he got word that Suleiman was dead, he started to raid the Romans, along with the other petty Turkmen commanders. Along the western coast of Anatolia, Another situation was developing, thanks to a Turkmen named Chaka. Now, it seems Chaka was a Turkmen who'd served with Wataniatis, but had fallen out of favor. And after Alexius's coup in 1081, Chaka had taken control of the coastal city of Smyrna, modern Izmir, and began a career as a pirate. Smyrna was well-positioned to serve as a base for naval raids on the cities and towns of the Roman Empire's European possessions, as well as the islands that dot the Aegean Sea. By the late 1080s, Chaka was proving a real thorn in the side of the Roman Empire, and in the early 1090s, there was talk of contact and a possible alliance between Chaka and the Pechenegs in the Balkans. If those two ever teamed up, Constantinople was in real trouble. The Pechenegs could swarm the city from the north by land, and Chaka's fleet could attack by sea from the south. And in 1090, while Alexios was busy trying to fend off the Pechenegs, Suleiman's former general, Abul Qasim, captured the city of Nicomedia, modern Izmit. This appears to be the second time Nicomedia fell into Turkmen hands. Suleiman had taken the city in the late 1070s, but then returned it to imperial hands in 1081. Now they had lost it again. Nicomedia is only about 100 kilometers from Constantinople. Uh, Google Maps says it's about a two-hour drive from modern-day Istanbul to modern-day Iznik. So, yikes. By 1091, it was clear Alexios had lost control of the Turkmen. Between the Pechenegs occupying huge chunks of the Balkans, Abul Qasim now controlling the territory up to the Bosporus Strait, basically, and Chaka patrolling the seas, Constantinople was surrounded. And Alexios could really only claim to rule the city and its immediate surroundings. However, this grab bag of Turkmen raiders actually gave Alexios and Malik Shah a common enemy. It seems Malik Shah wanted to get rid of the Turkmen of Anatolia as well. As I mentioned in episode 1.14, Malik Shah wrote to the emperor, offering his aid. Quote, I have heard, emperor, of your troubles. I know that from the start of your reign you have met with many difficulties, and that recently 
after you had settled the Latin affairs, the Pechenegs were preparing to make war on you. The emir, Abul Qasim, too, having broken the treaty that Suleiman concluded with you, is ravaging Asia as far as the Malis itself. If it is your wish that Abul Qasim should be driven from those districts, and that Asia, together with Antioch, should be subject to you, send me your daughter as wife for the eldest of my sons. Thereafter, nothing will stand in your way. It will be easy for you to accomplish everything with my aid, not only in the east, but even as far as Illyricon and the entire west. Because of the forces I will send you, no one will resist you from now on. The Latin affairs refers to the Norman invasion, so Malik Shah has a pretty good handle on geopolitics in the West. The marriage of our historian, Anakomnini, and Malik Shah's eldest didn't happen. But it seems Alexios and Malik Shah were still able to come to an agreement, and in early 1092, just as the letter promised, Malik Shah sent Bozan to aid the emperor in ejecting the Turkmen of Anatolia, starting with Suleiman's main successor, Abul Qasim. Alexios sent his own forces to meet up with Bozan. This army was under the general Tatikios. Tatikios is the Tetigus mentioned in the Gesta Francorum. He was a Turk, actually, who'd been captured and enslaved by Alexios' father as a child, and then grown up with Alexios. Despite the incredibly uneven power dynamic, the two were close friends, and Alexios trusted Tatikios implicitly. This trust was evident in the fact that it was Tatikios sent to represent the Roman Empire, on a joint expedition with the forces of Malik Shah, and it would also be Tatikios who Alexios sent with the crusading army to keep an eye on them as well. These military operations were also delicate diplomatic affairs, and Alexios obviously considered Tatikios up to the task of speaking for the emperor. So, in 1092, the Seljuk forces under Bozan and the Roman forces of Tatikios attempted to capture Nicaea, the capital of what we're going to keep calling the Sultanate of Rum. But the city was not ready to fall. However, this siege, along with the destruction of Abu Qasim's fleet, pressured Abu Qasim into signing a peace treaty with the Romans and accepting the title of Sebastos. Alexios was clearly trying to incorporate this new player into the Roman state, as had been done with Ariscon, and to some degree at least with Suleiman. Through diplomacy and persistent military effort, Alexios was even able to take Nicomedia back and decimate Chaka's fleet confining the pirate Turkmen to Smyrna. However, 1092 was the end of the alliance between Malik Shah and Alexios, because that was the year the great sultan kicked the bucket. This is often presented as an opening for Alexios, an invitation to take back Anatolia, and that's why he called for Frankish aid. But, if anything, Malik Shah had been an ally to the emperor, so you could even say that the Franks were really just a replacement for the great sultan. But let's not make the mistake of overestimating the impact of Malik Shah's death on Alexios' military situation. Sure, the alliance had proven useful for Alexios, but it wasn't essential. More than anything, it was just good to have a neutral sultan in Persia. On the whole, Malik Shah's death, which led to the Seljuk civil war and a lack of any interference from the east, well, it wasn't a huge blow. However, there was an inadvertent consequence of Malik Shah's passing that did weaken Alexios' position. That was the release of Suleiman's son, Kilij Arslan. Kilij had been taken prisoner back in 1085 and lived through basically the same experience his father had. But also like his dad, he was able to escape and make his way back to Anatolia. Shortly after his arrival, Abul Qasim got himself killed. 
he was probably killed by Boson, and it seems he was basically collateral damage of the Seljuk Civil War. If you recall, once more from episode 1.14, Boson had originally allied with Tutush, and then betrayed him, siding with Malik Shah's son, Berkiruk. Somehow, Abul Qasim got himself wrapped up in all that, and well, adios. This left a vacuum in what we are still unofficially calling the Sultanate of Rum. A vacuum Kilich Arslan was more than happy to fill. He was even able to take Chaka's coastal territories. He arranged a marriage to Chaka's daughter, and then invited the father-in-law to a banquet, where he had him killed. Gotta love the Seljuks. Now, what was Alexios to do? He'd been able to establish a working relationship with Suleiman, and then he'd even been able to force Abul Qasim to come to terms and take on a Byzantine title. What to do with this new motherfucker, though? It's clear he needed to make a show of force if he was going to force Kilic to accept Roman overlordship. But how? He'd lost his ally, and Malik Shah had not left a clear successor in place. So instead of looking east for a new one, he looked west. That's the military angle, at least. We're going to come back to this point, I promise. But before we do, we need to talk about internal Roman politics. All this talk of frontier warfare gives the impression of a vice closing in on Constantinople. The Normans invading from the west, the Turkmen from the east, the Pechenegs from the north. But if you know anything about Roman history, you know that the worst threats come from within. In 1081, the state was broken. No one had any confidence in the imperial title, the economy was in freefall, and it seemed God had turned his back on the Romans. Alexius's decision to use ties to the Latin West might have been motivated by military necessity, but it fit into broader economic, administrative, and even religious decisions. And to understand how and how it shaped Alexius's legacy, we need to get a better idea of how the new emperor tackled these fundamental administrative, economic, and religious challenges. See, Alexios dramatically changed the Roman political infrastructure. In a way, this was unavoidable. He had inherited, or stolen, a run-down, broken system that could not be relied on. So he turned the empire into a family affair, kicking off what you could consider the last phase of Roman political structure. He elevated the Komninoi, and perhaps out of necessity, he made it clear that just being a Komninoi, or married to one, gave you legitimacy. In a way, it reminds me of the Seljuks investing power in the family as a whole. There technically are two more Roman dynasties, but both of these are closely tied to the Komninoi, and all of the future Roman Vasilefs will be descendants of Alexios. Even the Ottomans, who granted, are probably taking this in part from Turkish tradition, will retain a focus on the imperial family. The days of some random general seizing power are gone. The folks attempting to seize power will all have the same last name. Historian Paul Magdaleno points out five key aspects that Alexios introduced. They are, one, the contrast between the Komninoi's use of their extended family and that of the previous dynasty, the Macedonians. Quote, It is instructive to compare Alexios with the two greatest Macedonians, Vasil I and Vasil II. Vasil I crowned three of his sons, but confined his daughters to a convent. Vasil II never married and worked entirely through his household eunuchs. Of these, only one was a kinsman, and he did not last long. Alexios crowned only one of his sons, 
and this remained Comnenian practice, but gave the others substantial consolation prizes in the titles of Sevastokrator, Kaisar, and Panji Persevastos. All his sisters and daughters were used to build up the connections of the Komnenoi with other aristocratic families. Alexios made similar use of his nephews, nieces, and grandchildren. End quote. Number two, the blurring of the lines between the Komnenian family holdings and the state. The medieval historian Ioannis Zonoris, who is biased against Alexios, I should mention, states that the emperor, quote, treated the palace as his own home and called it like that, end quote. During Alexios's reign, he acted less like the steward of the state and more like the owner of the state. Number three, the role of women. I keep saying, Alexios did this or Alexios did that, but in reality, much of the civil decisions were made not by Alexios, but by his mother, Anna de la Sini. Alexios's father died in 1067, when the boy was only 10 years old. At that point, his mother became the head of the household, and it was she who arranged the key marriages that propelled the Komnenoi brothers to prominence, and it was her network of connections that not only assured support for Alexios's coup, but kept Alexios from being dethroned while he was off getting his ass kicked by Robert Giscar. Later in his life, Alexios's wife, Irini Dukaina, was also a powerful figure. Notably, Alexis's mother did not approve of the marriage between her son and Irini Dukaina, and she apparently hated Ioannis Dukas, the head of the Dukas family, brother of the first Dukas emperor, Konstantinos Dukas, and grandfather to Irini. This brings us to number four, the Dukai. The Komnenian dynasty was basically a blend of the Komnenoi with the Dukai and it was likely Alexis's marriage with Ioannis's granddaughter that assured his aid in the coup against Votaniatis. Lastly, number five, the role of family in the administration. Not only did his family members receive noble state titles on the reg, but particularly Isakios, his brother, and as I mentioned, his mother, were nearly co-emperors. In 1082, a chrysobol, or royal decree, was proclaimed, which stated that the empress mother's word was to be followed to the letter, quote, whether justified or unjustified. When we discuss these changes, it's important to not see them as being made purely out of some sort of revolutionary spirit to change things. Many of these changes evolved out of previous innovations during the 11th century. Let's take a beat to go over that third bullet point, the role of women in imperial rule. This had been on the rise throughout the 11th century. Not only were the last two Macedonian rulers women, the sister empresses Zoe and Theodora, but many other women served as kingmakers during the period. Notably, after the death of Konstantinos Dukas, his widow, Evdokia Makrembolitisa, had married Romanos Diogenes and made him emperor. Evdokia remained a powerful figure, by the way, and she'd almost married Votaniatis, to bring the usurper some much-needed legitimacy. Later on, the Komnino arranged a marriage between Evdokia's daughter and Alexius's younger brother, Adrian. And there was also Maria Valania, the Georgian princess and two-time empress who had first married Mikhail Lukas and then been forced to marry Votaniatis. As we heard in the opening of episode 1.12, when Votaniatis tried to cut Maria's son, Konstantinos Lukas, out of the succession, not only did that trigger a reaction from Robert Giscar, whose daughter was engaged to said son, 
but Maria decided Votaniates had to go, and she formed an alliance with the Komnenoi. She actually adopted Alexios, which was a common practice that implied more of a close client relationship. Alexios was only like four years younger than her, and there were persistent rumors of a romance between the two. Do I even need to make like the stepmom joke? Uh, it's really low-hanging fruit, you know? I think more highly of myself. Okay, going back to it. We can clearly see that there was immediate precedent for the women of the imperial court to wield power, often indirectly through their capacity to raise their husband to the status of emperor, like Zoe did three times over, and like Evdokia did with Romanos, or through their connections in an era of instability, like Maria Valania. You can also view a lot of these decisions as contingent on the situation, and it might not be so accurate to consider them part of some master plan, or even as characteristic of the emperor Alexios. Alexios has been famously described as faible devant les femmes, weak before women, which I think is 20th century French historian speak for simp. However, historian Barbara Hill also adds more nuance to Alexios's relationship with the imperial women of his life. Referring to the 1080s, she says, quote, In these years, Alexios was too preoccupied with holding the power he had won to be master of the entire situation. But with the military successes, which restored faith in his right to rule, he had leisure to tighten control over other areas. His attitude towards imperial women, therefore, should not come as a surprise. It is not remarkable that Alexios should have deferred to his mother in the early years of his reign for she was competent and wholly to be trusted. And she later adds, The crisis moments of legitimization reveal what quieter times conceal, and the most revealing moment is after the danger is over, for victory is followed by repression. The lessening visibility and effectiveness of imperial women over the period of the functioning communion system are a result of the success of Alexius's male-dominated system, which ensured that women would only be recognized as their husbands' wives, and gave men a real share in government. Before the Comnenian coup, women were visible in the sources to a much greater extent. Their visibility betokens a loss in male authority, a phenomenon so well known that women are accused of causing the crises which show their power. The disappearance of women during and after Alexius's reign the system he set up, and his own wife's conviction that all decisions had to be framed by him, reveal that Alexios, far from being faible devant les femmes, was weak before nobody, but a ruthless man with the strength to implement a ruthless regime. End quote. We can see more of this ruthlessness in economic and religious practices. You might recall that in episode 1.12, I mentioned the state was broke as fuck, but then, in episode 1.13, Alexios was bribing the German king to attack the Pope. So where'd he get the cash from? Well, in part from requisitions. He took a bunch of church objects and then sold them off. Alexios also made the coin debasement even worse towards the beginning of his reign. And he paid off his debt to the German with coins that had about as much gold as a chocolate gold coin. Okay, that was a terrible simile. They had very little precious metal content. Anyway... Alexius was finally able to reform the currency in 1092, when he introduced a new system that used alloys and set new values for the coins. However, a lot of the old coins remained in circulation, causing confusion until around 1106 when the taxation was adjusted. The currency and taxation reforms taken together are said to have increased the tax rate by 400%. 
That rate, however, was still being derived from a much smaller territory. In general, it seems Alexios was able to create more financial stability for the regime, but he still lacked the funds to put together a huge army. Keep that in mind. Alexios also strove to rehabilitate the church. Now, I think one aspect I've neglected in telling the story of 11th century Byzantium is the story of the church. You could easily tell the whole story through the lens of the church, and particularly from the point of view of the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople. One of the most important patriarchs of the century was Mikhail Kerularios. Kerularios was the patriarch whose excommunication in 1054 marked the great schism between East and West. He was later involved in the coup that brought Isaacios Komnenos the Elder to power, and his niece was married to Constantinos Dukas. So he was well connected. During the reign of Isaacios, the patriarch regularly clashed with the soldier-turned-emperor, who he'd helped gaining his throne. Some sources state he began to wear purple shoes, which was a right reserved only for those of imperial stature. Carolarios, take those shoes off, now! He ended up deposed, and then forced to stand trial, much to the glee of his longtime rival, our old friend Mikhail Pselos. Carolarios had once forced Pselos to go through a heresy trial, and now that the tables were turned, Pselos composed a long speech detailing all of Carolarios' assorted blasphemies, including satanic rituals. Historian Anthony Caldellis says, quote, It is likely that his speech was not actually going to be delivered, but was merely a fun exercise for Pselos. Either way, Carolarios died before the trial. Why do I mention this now? Well, one, because I feel it was a bit of an oversight, and two, because it illustrates just how important religion and religious institutions were in the Roman political sphere. During the 11th century, Similarly to how the absence of imperial authority had created the space for more female autonomy, it also created the space for more ecclesiastical autonomy. The church, in particular the office of the patriarch, was a frequent source of challenge for imperial figures, and so of course, Alexios had to make sure to shut all that shit down. Which he did. Alexios became the prototype for the epistomonarchis, the regulator of the church even though this title didn't officially come into usage until after his death. Perhaps his favorite regulator of the church weapon was heresy trials. In 1082, right after the defeat at Dyrrhachion, Alexios, or perhaps his mother Anna in Constantinople, condemned Ioannis Italos as a heretic. Now, Ioannis Italos was a big figure. He'd been a key advisor to Mikhail Lucas, and he'd actually been put in charge of negotiations with Robert Giscar. Italos was very popular within the church as well, and the hearing actually seemed to be going his way when a mob broke into the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom, hell-bent on lynching Italos themselves. Italos escaped by fleeing to the roof of the church, but the event spooked the church officials enough that the patriarch and the other church members abandoned Italos, leaving his fate in Alexios's hands. Nothing too bad happened to Italos, but he was forced to acknowledge his sins, which amounted to political suicide, and had the added effect of blowing back on his associates. Alexios, or again perhaps Anna, was able to use this to both discredit rivals they had among Italos' associates and extract the loyalty of the rest of his little fan club, if they didn't want to go down with the heretic. 
The question remains open, by the way, of how exactly the mob that attacked the church was connected to the Komnenoi. But given the fact that it was this event that gave them the judgment they wanted from the hearing, it's clear something fishy was going on. Quid bono. The rest of Alexis's reign would see more heresy trials and more efforts by the Komnenoi to subordinate the church. These might have also been fueled by actual religious belief as much as political gain. The Komnenoi clan, particularly Anna de la Sini and Alexios, as well as his wife, Irini, were known for their piety. Anna Komnini says that her mother and father would unwind in the evenings by reading from the good book and that they made the imperial palace somewhat of a monastery. Alexios also sponsored the building of various monasteries, as well as perhaps his crowning institutional achievement, the Orphanotrophion, the orphanage. This was a huge complex which housed various clergy members, but as the name implies, also served as a grammar school for orphaned and poor children of any background. All in all, it probably serviced thousands of children, as well as monks and nuns. It not only fed the kids, but served to educate them. And there are tales of the poorest children using the education gleaned from the Orphanotrophion to become respected clergy members. Now, why have we spent so much time talking about Alexios and his administrative policies? Who cares what he thought about women or heretics or orphans? Well, in March of 1095, Alexios sent an embassy to a church council at Piacenza in northern Italy. This council was being presided over by Pope Urban II. Now, what exactly the emperor's envoy said to Pope Urban? We don't know. What we do know is that a few months later, on November 27, 1095, Pope Urban made a call to arms, a call to aid the Christians of the East. Whatever Alexios had in mind when he sent envoys to Piacenza cannot be viewed in a vacuum. It has to be viewed in contrast with the state of the dynasty, the economic situation, and the religious situation. So let's do just that. First, the religious situation. The two churches were technically in schism, and Pope Urban's predecessor and mentor, Pope Gregory, had not only authorized Robert Giscard's invasion of Byzantium, but excommunicated Alexios personally. Alexios had in return allied with the German king, Henry IV, against the Pope and the Giscar. See episode 1.13. This persistent battle between East and West, Latin and Greek churches, weighed heavily on the religiously minded of the era. An alliance with Pope Urban could serve to mend the cracks in the orthodoxy. Alexios could have gone to secular figures, and if Frankopan's reading is right, he did indeed contact all his allies in the West. But the most important figure to win over was Pope Urban. Alexios probably knew that Pope Gregory had actually tried a similar alliance with Mikhail Lukas, but that it had failed. And even if this little crusade thing fell through, Alexios might have thought of military aid as secondary to religious reconciliation when he sent his men to Piacenza. As for the economic angle, well, that's a simple one. He didn't have the money to pay for a proper army. Franks were very good at facing off against Turks. We've seen that time and time again. But paying them? That was going to be tough. By 1095, Alexios had reformed the currency, but the fiscal situation was still volatile. In 1089, he'd had the good fortune of running into Robert, Count of Flanders, while Robert was on his way back from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The two had struck up a friendship, 
and at the time, Alexios was struggling against Abul Qasim. Robert had pledged to send aid to Alexios, which he did, 500 Frankish knights that Alexios used to crush the Pechenegs. You can maybe see a light bulb moment for Alexios here. It was clear that the Franks loved Jerusalem, who wouldn't, and they were willing to fight for free to keep the Roman Empire safe. 500 knights weren't going to do the job, but the sales pitch might work if only Alexios had a bigger megaphone. See, you gotta know how to sell the thing. It's an internship, not unpaid labor. Lastly, the dynasty. Now, as I mentioned, after Alexios, random generals won't be declaring themselves emperor anymore. This isn't the crisis of the third century. Thanks to Alexios and his mom doing their best to ensure only the Komnenoi and those associated to them were in positions of power. But that didn't mean coups were going to stop entirely. This is the Roman Empire. It just meant that from now on, the coups are coming from inside the house. In 1094, Alexios discovered a massive plot to remove him and place Nikiforos the Oyenis on the throne. Nikiforos was the son of Romanos the Oyenis. You remember, he had had two kids before the Oyenis was captured and manzacurt. Well, 22 years had passed and little Nikiforos was all grown up. Alexios had actually made Nikiforos ruler of Crete in honor of the fact that Nikiforos had been born of the purple to a reigning emperor, and he was the son of Evdokia Makrembolitisa, who still carried a lot of clout. Now, this would have been one betrayal, but what was worse is that the conspiracy went farther. It contained many figures close to the emperor personally. Perhaps the two most stinging betrayals were that of Maria Valania, one stepmother to the emperor. Maria's son, Constantinos, who'd once been engaged to the Giscard's daughter, was at the time engaged to Alexios' daughter, Anna, so they were soon to be in-laws as well. And, it seems Alexios' own brother, Adrian, was also involved. The full list of conspirators is difficult to pin down, but you can basically check who stayed on in positions of power after the coup was discovered, and make some guesses. The reason the list is difficult to pin down is that it was kept quiet because the coup represented a major vote of no confidence in Alexios I Komnenos. So you could see the desire to bring in a Frankish army as a display of brutish mercenary power, directed not only at Kilij Arslan, but his own ungrateful family. And of course, using this army to crush Kilij Arslan would represent a huge victory that would bolster the emperor's popularity. All of these are possible motivating factors, but if you're looking for a definitive answer, you're not going to find it here. Because we have a huge issue, and that is our main source, the Alexiad. To quote from the final chapter, written by Michael Angold, to the aptly titled collection, Alexios I Komnenos, which also contains the chapters I quoted above from Barbara Hill and Paul Magdaleno, quote, the problem has always been how to escape from the constraints imposed in the Alexiad. Its defects as history have long been known. The chronology is muddled and deliberately misleading. Despite protestations to the contrary, Anna Komnini omits much that was detrimental to her father's reputation. End quote. And Anna is writing in a time when it's clear that the Franks were dangerous. The Latin Christian Utremer states proved it. Angold finishes the chapter with a pretty critical assessment of Alexios, stating, quote, Alexios was a man of action. 
he did not possess any clear program. He told his son that actions could speak louder than words. He was dismissive of rhetorical culture. He was not of a reflective disposition. He may well have seen no incompatibility between his reliance on his family and the traditional exercises of imperial authority. It was sufficient that he was the defender of orthodoxy. That was the leitmotif of his reign. It served instead of any program of renovatio. The paradox was that he laid the foundations of a new system of government. In typical Byzantine fashion, this was very largely a matter of expedience, designed to meet a series of crises. There was no thought about systematic reform. Alexios knew how to react to events, but he was no statesman or reformer. Hence the difficulty modern historians have had in assessing his achievement. He undoubtedly rescued the empire from a period of crisis, but he lived long enough to see the limitations of his achievements. The support of the imperial family would give way to a bitter succession struggle, which he was unable to master. Finally, Alexis's masterstroke had been his appeal to the papacy for military aid. By the end of his reign, it was clear that it had brought Byzantium relatively little in terms of territorial gain and much in the way of potential danger. End quote. So is Alexios basically just a reactionary? Was the call from the East just a drunk dial? Well, I doubt he would have made the call if he'd known how things would turn out. And writing retroactively, Anna is pretty dead set on not blaming her dear old dad for the Frankish kerfuffle. As we heard in the opening, she portrays her dad as a builder, out there digging canals to stop the Turks, when some random Franks just show up uninvited. What? The First Crusade was his scheme? No, Daddy wouldn't do that. Yuck, ally with the Celts? No, 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 no. Daddy's plan was to build a canal. A man, a plan, a canal, Anatolia. She undercuts her own version of events pretty quickly when she mentions that there was the necessary infrastructure set up to feed this army. In the medieval era, you don't just have enough food lying around for an army. Alexios knew the Franks were coming. The role he'd played in arranging for the Franks to come on over is never made clear. Anna must have known her argument doesn't really hold any water, but she doesn't even try to present an alternate point of events. No, Alexios didn't know anything about this army. Nope. Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, do you want to hear more about all the heretics that he tried in a court and won? I can tell you about Vasil the Vogelmeel. To quote Michael Angold again, this time from the end of his chapter of the Cambridge History of the Byzantine Empire, titled Belle Epoque, or Crisis, Anna Komnena breathes not a word about her father's appeal to Pope Urban II, which triggered the crusade. This may have been because she did not know about it, or because she did not connect her father's appeal with the crusade. But more probably, she was trying to protect her father's reputation. By the time she was writing, some 30 years after her father's death, it was apparent that the crusade was the cutting edge of Western expansion. It was Alexis's task to come to terms with Western encroachment, which had begun to make itself felt from the middle of the 11th century, and which took various forms. The least harmful appeared to be the commercial activities of Venetian and other Italian merchants. They offered a solution to Byzantium's need for naval assistance, and early in his reign, Alexios engaged the services of the Venetian fleet. In 1082, he granted the Venetians special privileges in Constantinople, an exemption from the payment of customs duties throughout the empire. It appeared a very good bargain. In 1111, 
Alexios entered into a similar arrangement with the Pisans, reducing their customs duty to 4%. He was angling for their support in his plans, which never came to anything, to bring the Crusader states under Byzantine control. Alexios was using the Italians, much as the emperors of the 10th century had used the Rus, to strengthen the empire's naval and commercial resources. The appeal to Urban II was intended to complement this by harnessing the military potential of the Franks. Alexios could not have imagined that it would trigger off a crusade, nor that this would cease to be a cooperative venture and be turned against Byzantium. Within Byzantium, the crusade not only hardened attitudes towards the West, it also created tensions. Opinion polarized between those who favored continuing cooperation with the West and those who rejected this approach, preferring to fall back on splendid isolation. This put added pressure on the fault lines that existed within the Comnenian settlement, between the emperor and church, between autocracy and aristocracy, between the Comnenian ascendancy and the excluded, between the capital and the provinces. Alexios hoped that an understanding with the West would provide Byzantium with the additional resources needed to restore its position as a world power. He could not have foreseen how much it would undermine Byzantium from within. This was the true nature of Alexius's failure. It was counterbalanced by his success in restoring the integrity of the imperial office and the soundness of imperial administration. For more than half a century after his death, Byzantium remained a great power. End quote. If I've spent a lot of time on Alexios and the context for this decision, it's not only because it's important for our immediate narrative, but because the Roman Empire, Romania, will continue to feature heavily in our story. The Crusaders and later the Utremer states will bring East and West much closer together, and the Utremer states will be shaped in large part by diplomacy and trade with their closest Christian neighbor, Constantinople. In our next season, we'll be exploring how this appeal for aid was received by Pope Urban II and what he did with it. But to finish our first season, let's take a quick look at the state of the Eastern Mediterranean in 1095, on the eve of the First Crusade. From west to east, in northern Italy, Pisa and Genoa are fast developing into trade juggernauts. They've also picked up a taste for piracy. They've got ships and hunger aplenty. They're totally down to go kill some folks and steal their shit. Then set up trading posts, I guess. In southern Italy and Sicily, the Normans have just conquered the last Muslim stronghold. The peninsula and island are a bit divided politically. The two most powerful figures are Raja I, Robert Kiskar's brother, who reigns in Sicily, over a mixed Latin, Greek, and Muslim population, and Raja Borsa, Kiskar's son with Sikil Gaita, his second wife, who's not exactly the sharpest tool in the shed. There's not much for the Normans to do anymore, and some of them are a bit resentful that the land seems to have been divvied out before they got there. Giscar's bastard son, Bohemund, is definitely not happy with what he was left with when daddy kicked it. The Normans of Sicily are well acquainted with both the Greeks and the Muslims, and they know there's wealth to be found in the east. They control Amalfi, which still retains some trade with the Fatimids and other wealthy ports of the east. In the Roman Empire, well, we just spent about an hour discussing it. Alexios just put down a coup, and he needs military aid. He's not too picky about where it comes from, to be honest, but a rapprochement with the Latin church would be a feather in his cap. In Anatolia, Kilic Arslan has only been in charge for a few years. He's still trying to hold his own against the more unorganized Turkmen of Eastern Anatolia, 
particularly the Donishmend. He's been locked in a struggle with them for a while. He's not overly concerned about his western flank, though. The Romans are pussycats, as far as he's concerned. To the south, the Armenians are trying to make the best of the situation as well. They don't really have any powerful friends, though. The Turkmen of the area are mostly raiders, and the Romans are backstabbing infidels. The Seljuk Empire is a fucking mess. I guess Berkyaruk, Malik Shah's eldest son, is sultan, but his brother Muhammad to the east is probably more powerful than him, even if he's not the official head of the dynasty. In Egypt, the Fatimid Caliph is under the thumb of an Armenian general, Alafdal. Alafdal is actually in a pretty good position. He started a war of reconquest to take back the lands the caliphate had once held in the Levant. Great for Alafdal, less so for the residents of the Levant. For whom, well, it's been a tough couple of years of constant warfare. Let's say you're a 30-year-old resident of Jerusalem in 1095. You were born in 1065, when the city was part of the Fatimid Empire. But the Fatimid Empire had just entered what will be the longest drought in centuries, spreading famine and disease throughout the land. Fun! When you were about six, Jerusalem fell into the hands of Atsis. Now, that's not too bad, the city wasn't sacked in this event, but it was still destabilizing. It seems, though, that the city, or powerful elements within it, weren't too happy under Atsi's rule, because while the Turkmen was busy in Egypt, fighting the Fatimids, the city went into revolt and enslaved the Turkmen's family. Now, the real trouble came, because Atsis made it out of Egypt. Hopefully you're a Christian, not a Jew or a Muslim, because in 1078, when you were about 13, Atsis recaptured Jerusalem and killed pretty much everyone except the Christians. So, let's say you're Christian, or somehow survived the mass slaughter. The city was then taken by Tutush not too long after. Great. Tutush put it under the command of Artuk. There's still war going on everywhere, so life can't be too good. Artuk died, and then his sons took up control of the city. And that's your life. Famine, and sieges, and plague, and mass slaughter. But things are looking up. There hasn't been a siege in a few years. Little do you know, in three years, the Fatimids will retake the city. And then, just a few months later, a whole new breed of army will enter the equation. You've seen Latin Christian pilgrims before. They're a pretty constant sight in Jerusalem. But you've never seen so many. And you've never seen them this enraged. And well now, we've come back full circle. Back to where we began. High noon on the 15th of July, 1099. I'll see you all in season two. After the death of Constantinos Dukas, his widow, Evdokia, Macrembolitisa, 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 Macrembolitisa,